agriculture. This momentous gathering, a benefit for KPFA and Navdanya Institute, hosted by KPFA's Janine Etter, is wheelchair accessible. Advanced tickets at brownpapertickets.com or indie bookstores. More info on kpfa.org for April 27th. Vandana Shiva. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Jennifer Stone and Cover to Cover. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. And today is March the 29th. 29 March, let's see. That means we are just finishing up the month that is devoted to women and we turn to the month that is devoted to poets. I just love all this stuff about... (laughs) Oh dear, how about I do... Um, one of my favorite women, Emily Dickinson, and she's also a poet, so I've covered both bases here. Uh, I hope that you got uh, through Christmas this year, uh, Christmas, Easter. It's all the same. See, when you get as old as I am, one holiday is much like the other. I love Easter because my first child was born on Easter back in 1970. The firstborn, right? So I figure every Easter it's time for resurrection. I hope everybody got resurrected. Rebirthing, they call it these days. Uh, for me, that does mean poetry. And I think Emily Dickinson is my favorite. Ah, uh, uh, yes, uh, all things considered. Um, next to Gertrude Stein, but I, once again, I don't like this business of measuring things. Um, Comparisons are odious, said somebody. Anyway, I'm going to uh, tell you a little bit about Emily Dickinson's loaded gun. Aha, she wrote once, my life had stood a loaded gun. Now, what the hell did that mean? I remember in the women's writer's workshop we used to argue and argue uh i like to use emily dickinson's line uh i like a look of agony because i know it's true <laughs> now uh, i believe the the uh, 
feminist writer, uh, Camille Paglia. She said that that proved that Emily Dickinson was a, uh, what, a sadist. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's what uh, most of us know, that uh, pain is kind of hard to disguise. You, you, you know it when you see it. Uh, now, Emily Dickinson's loaded gun is directed, pointed right at herself first, and then at the rest of us. Anybody trying to survive the 19th century in America <laughs> would certainly would certainly know that they were, what is the word, uh, not being stalked, but that they were uh, under the gun. Yes, under the gun. Uh, Emily was such a radical. I think ever since I read her line, uh, my barefoot rank is best. That's what sold me on Emily being a, uh, a hippie, you know, uh Loaf of bread, jug of wine, and Emily Dickinson for me. I remember starting my poetry readings by taking off my shoes. I thought people would think that was symbolic, mostly. <laughs> mostly they didn't notice. Uh, I think, yes, uh, I think that the image, oh, it's, I, I'm just, I'm not even going to argue with myself about it anymore. This image of Emily Dickinson as a sweet little lady in the white dress, you know, uh, that's still the thing. Uh, this little virginal lass, let's see, there's a little letter I have here from Thomas Wentworth Higginson, born eight. 1923 died 1911 this is one of the soulmates Emily Dickinson wrote to and uh, she did meet him once I do not think she was she <laughs> she had a secret love for him although it seems to me that most of the biographers are busy finding uh, these connections for Emily uh he met her in, uh, let's see, late in her life. She died at age 56. And, yes, here is a note. Uh, it was written 20 years, yeah, after the fact. So uh, she would have been, oh, she would have been younger. Anyway, uh, this is something that appeared in the Atlantic Monthly near the end of the century. And it is a description of Emily he says, she was much too enigmatical a being for me. Uh, an hour's interview was not enough to solve the mystery. Instinct told me that the slightest attempt at direct cross-examination would make her withdraw into her shell. I could only sit and watch, as one does in the woods. I must name my bird without a gun, as recommended by Emerson. <laughs> Obviously, he was in the uh, space of someone who is, what is it, uh, a child of nature. Uh, Emily was like a, a deer. If you startled her, she'd just go off someplace else. Uh, I don't think 
that all that nonsense about her being a recluse uh, is very important. She kept she kept going. She was a very busy woman, but uh, she was technically a spinster. Uh, I think that the thought rhymes of Emily Dickinson uh, are Zen Cohen's. Over and over, uh, I come back to Dickinson at least every Easter or spring, because I do need a resurrection. Do I ever? April means this plunge back into poetry, into the erotic. Now, the erotic is eros, you know, he's a god, kind of like the antithesis of Thanatos' death. Eros is life. Uh, <laughs> I think that April, April is almost on us, and April is the cruelest month. But uh, take a deep breath. We can come alive once more, revive the emotions. These days, I'm afraid that the fear of feeling is everywhere. I guess in the, the feeling of being afraid is with me now. I'm afraid I was watching terrible movies at four this morning, and it has left me rather shaken. Uh, <laughs> There's one about Iraq that was so bloody. I've never seen anything like it. I hope the children don't see it. It's a movie about, uh, oh, let's call it mayhem. Uh, something about the only people uh, who know anything about death are those who are at war. Uh, anyway, I think that most people don't want to let go of rational order. They don't want to be carried away. They don't want to be emotional to sing or dance in the moonlight the way our pagan parents did. Actually, Emily knew that you can't make poetry out of thought. Poetry is passion. Linear thought, you know, that's the kind that leads to death. <laughs> it must be seduced, seduced, seduced. That's what it is. Linear thought. You have to go for it the way you go for uh, someone you want to... Uh, <laughs> yes, you want to have sex with... Uh, I think... I think... Uh, it's called Wild Mind. That's what Emily had, the fires of ecstasy. Emily, she was, um, this word, she was a Delphic, Delphic Oracle. Uh, the Delphic Oriole's name was Pythia. I love Pythia. I think I'll use that name for a while. Uh, she made mind music. She's the sort of poet who heard the grass growing. She writes, Witchcraft is wiser than we. Conventional Christianity in her time uh, was not her cup of tea. She writes, I do not respect doctrines. They, that is her family, they are religious, except me. They address an eclipse every morning, whom they call their father. Uh, then she goes on to, to describe uh, one of the local women, a Mrs. Schweitzer, 
how she rolls out in black crepe. Uh, <laughs> she says, there's no greater ecstasy than watching her uh, enter church. Uh, she says that Mrs. Sweetser is trying to intimidate Antichrist. Emily Dickinson wrote that her business was circumference. I think today the poet's business is synthesis. Uh, she was very fond of George Eliot. She read George Eliot's novel Middlemarch. And she writes that she was convinced after reading George Eliot that, quote, the mysteries of human nature surpass the mysteries of redemption. She was searching for the ineffable. She writes, impossibility, like wine, exhilarates the man who tastes it. Possibility is flavorless. Or as Gertrude Stein put it, if a thing can be done, why do it? <laughs> anyway, these women could be sensual and cerebral in the same sentence. I used to use that to describe Edna St. Vincent Millay, you know. The light between the eyes and the light between the thighs. Uh, in our Western culture, we try to separate them uh, but these women, they know the gun is loaded. <laughs> the thought and feeling, they understand, they know that these are not separate things, that the mind and the body are part of the same package. In 1870, Emily Dickinson wrote, If I read a book, and if it makes my whole body so cold, no fire ever can warm me. I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. <laughs> Stuffy as things were back in Amherst, Massachusetts, in the middle of the 19th century... Emily could write about her ecstasy in living. In 1856, her brother, Austin, married Susan Gilbert, and they set up a house next door. And Emily's fierce relationship with Susan uh, is so exhaustively detailed in all the biographies, I don't need to go into it. Um, <laughs> pretty pretty rough, Um Several books, of course, have insisted that this was a, a lesbian love. Uh, who knows? Who knows? Um, I recommend Richard Sewell's biography back in 1974. Richard Sewell um, wrote the best, or what I think is the the most thorough biography of Emily. There's another little book I have with me here by Susan Howe called My Emily Dickinson. That's something else, you know. Nowadays, those of us who think that we <laughs> we have a right to the poets of the past, 
we like to take their work and show how it relates to us, to our time, and even to our poetry. Uh, Emily had quarrels with Susan, her brother's wife, uh, mostly on the subject of religion. <laughs> this is my favorite uh, clue to what Emily thinks about uh, the supernatural, she writes. And though in that last day that Jesus Christ you love remark he does not know me, there is a darker spirit will not disown its child. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and this is long before Sigmund Freud, all that stuff about death and darkness. Uh, what was Emily thinking and where was she coming from? She writes, quote, I see New Englandly. Her school first was Amherst Academy. 1847, she entered Mount Holyoke Female Seminary. Very early, she became what is called low in health. Neurasthenia, I believe it was called. She withdrew living always in her great brick house, staying within its grounds, going deeper into the house when the doorbell rang. She told her friend Higginson, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, again, I quoted him earlier, yes. She said, uh, All men say, What? To me. <laughs> she restricted the number of questioners. She want people who kept saying what? Higginson found her father to be what he calls thin, dry, speechless. In 1862, Emily writes, My father only reads on Sunday. He reads lonely and rigorous books. I have a brother and sister. That's Lavinia, born 1833. My mother does not care for thought. I will repeat that, yes. My mother does not care for thought. And father, too busy with his briefs to notice what we do, he buys me many books but begs me, begs me not to read them. He fears they juggle the mind. In June 1874, Emily's father died. She writes, Though it is many nights, my mind never comes home. A year later, her mother became an invalid and suffered a paralysis until she died in November 1882. That would be... What is it? Seven years of taking care of her paralyzed mom. She writes, we were never intimate, mother and children, while she was our mother. When she became our child, the affection came. I think these Victorian Americans have an awful lot to teach. Uh, Emily is not to be pitied or condescended to. Uh, I think of her by the 
blazing wood fire, celestial evenings. Um, music. They had a lot of music, rampant fun, feasting, and of course her solitude. What she calls that polar privacy, a soul admitted to itself. Emily did not abuse her leisure. She baked and gardened and attended to her sewing and knitting and wrote hundreds, hundreds of letters as fascinating as the poems. She played the piano. She walked with her dog, Carlo. She writes, large as myself, that my father bought me. See, Carlo, I think of Emily Bronte's dog keeper. Certainly as large as Emily Bronte. Those two women on either side of the pond. Uh, anyway, Emily Dickinson fled from distractions, from conventional society. She did this in order to develop her imagination. Uh, she was a mystic living among orthodox religious institutions and structured belief systems. <laughs> that the 19th century she needed to be alone Emily's niece writes once I repeated to Aunt Emily what a neighbor had said that time must pass very slowly for her who never went anywhere she flashed back with Robert Browning's line time what time was all I wanted <laughs> Let's face it, Emily knew who she could talk to. I finally understood that a few years ago. Right, time is all we want, just more time. She wrote, the soul selects her own society, then shuts the door. A poet's tragedy, if it is tragedy, is to love alone. Dickinson writes, Till it has loved, no man or woman can become itself. Right, like Emily Bronte across the sea in Yorkshire. She's a solo act, but she has the angst of an existentialist. She wrote, It might be lonelier without the loneliness. A poet, yes, who cannot be heard in the world, must go deeply into herself. Emily writes, this, this is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. I think the poems are iconoclastic and the world just didn't get it, you know. They had no use for her voice in the beginning. There's a quote here from a Reverend Brooke Herford. He read some of her verses in the Boston Christian Register and he he was uh, shocked. He thought them, uh, quote, one of the most offensive bits of contemptuous Unitarianism that I have met with. Gosh, I didn't know Emily Dickinson was a Unitarian. Anyway, Emily had compared Christ's coming on earth in behalf of the Father, 
that is Yahweh, Jehovah. She compared it with John Alden's service in behalf of Miles Standish in Longfellow's poem. Remember, Emily is quirky, sardonic, irreverent, bold, witty, and sometimes even comic. She writes, God is a distant, stately lover. Right, stately, that's what he is. Among Emily's earthly loves, her sister-in-law Susan seems to be the most uh, sadistic and selfish. Her brother Austin had a later love, Mabel Loomis Todd. Uh, She is very sympathetic to Emily's work and to her life. With Thomas Higginson, she's the one who published the second series of the poems in 1891. Uh, One of the first readers was Alice James, the sister of Henry and William James. Alice wrote in her diary, January 1892, she writes, It is reassuring to hear the English pronouncement that Emily Dickinson is fifth-rate. They have such a capacity for missing quality. The robust evades them equally with the subtle. (laughs) Mabel Todd writes that uh, the poems were a great help to her in her own uh, pain and suffering. Uh, She said the effect on her mentally and spiritually uh, changed her life. She said the poems opened the door into a wider universe. And she goes on about the small size of the sphere in which she is moving in that lovely place, yes, Amherst in the late 19th century. She says that the poems, she describes them, she says their sadness and their helplessness sometimes was so much bitterer than mine that, quote, she quotes Emily, I was helped as if a kingdom cared. Mabel had to convince Higginson that the poems were not too crude. He told her to classify them A, B, and C, and then he'd look them over. (laughs) Her prefaces to the poems compare them to impressionistic painting, to Wagner's music. Uh, Mabel... Todd discovered the strange cadence, the inner rhythms, the spiritual smoke that recalls William Blake. And she even discovered Emily's humor, especially in relation to her sister Lavinia, a woman who lived much of the time in what Emily called the state of regret. That's the best quote on Lavinia, yes, she lives in a state of regret. Uh, anyway, I always see Emily at Easter time, you know. She goes into the uh, garden and she's quite ecstatic, calla lilies. Uh, she writes, the brain is wider than the sky, deeper than the sea. It is just the weight of God. She writes of God's foreplay in the poem which begins... He fumbles at your soul as players at the keys before they drop full music on. She then goes right on to imagine the celestial orgasm itself. 
<laughs> One imperial thunderbolt that scalps your naked soul. Oh boy, yes, she has a orgasmic view of uh, the divine, the divine, right? The illumination that comes to the poet. Uh, I wish I had time to read you more of these essays. I have several essays published over the years on Emily Dickinson. Uh, in a way, I'm kind of glad I didn't get to her uh, departure. She died what we would call very young at 56. Uh, she certainly struggled with mutability and death and with Eros and Sanatos, the poet's bedfellows. By departing light we see acuter quite than by a wick that stays. This has been Jennifer Stone reading to you about the American poet Emily Dickinson. I'll be back on the air next week at the same time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Just in time for KPFA's birthday, Amy Goodman is coming to Berkeley to launch her new book, Democracy Now!, 20 Years Covering the Movement Changing America. On Sunday, April 17th, Amy will take the stage with her brother and co-author David to present two decades of history-making journalism. That's at the First Congregational Church of Berkeley, 2345 Channing Way, starting at 7.30 p.m. and hosted by me, Brian Edwards Teeker. There's wheelchair access, tickets available in advance through brownpapertickets.com and local independent bookstores, and full details on our website, kpfa.org. It is a very happy birthday to Democracy Now! and to KPFA with Amy Goodman on April 17th. See you there.